The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. I want to draw your attention uh, away from the waterfall to two portions of God's word. We will come to Hebrews 1, 1 through 5 again, but let's begin in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, which uh, later texts of scripture uh, call us the establishment uh, by God of his covenant with David. I'll mention one of those texts later on. Verses 1 through uh, 16. Now when the king lived in his house, this is King David, and the Lord gave him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house, built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, bringing us to our second Old Testament text quoted by the preacher to the Hebrews. Long ago at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Thus far God's word, let's pray together. Father, in these few moments, we ask that you would open your word to us and open our hearts to your word. Help us to see the wonder of Jesus, the son of David, who is the builder of your house, and to marvel at your mercy that we are that house in which you dwell, that Jesus, the risen Lord, is building. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, last Tuesday, we began a seven-part series of meditations on the texts quoted in Hebrews 1, 5 to 14, to support the prologue's claim that Jesus, the eternal Son, radiance of God's glory, creator and sustainer of the universe, having become the messianic Son to purify our sins, has now been exalted and given a name that is at that is above every name, the title Son. We heard last week from Psalm 2 the implication that no angel has ever been addressed in this way. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Today we come to a second text, the text that fits within that context of 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And the question I think that it raises is, does 2 Samuel 7.14 actually add anything to what we already heard from Psalm 2.7. We saw in Psalm 2.7 that actually our preacher is not just thinking about those specific words, but their, their neighborhood, the environment from which they came. Uh, we trace the, the fact that Psalm 2.8 talks about God's promise that the nations would be the inheritance of this Messiah who is son. And our preacher has already echoed that in the language of inheritance. He's the heir of all things and he has inherited a name that's better. What about now 2 Samuel 7 verse 14? Does it add anything? Obviously it connects with the theme of sonship from Psalm 2. Actually there are a bunch of things that it connects with in terms of Psalm 2. It also connects with the theme of God subduing the enemies of the Messiah of the rod of the Messiah as a rod of discipline, of the throne of the Messiah. They all share that in common. Um, but again, what does 2 Samuel 7, 14 add? Well, it begins to focus our attention on who the king is, who the son is in Psalm 2. You've probably been assuming that we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, right? The eternal son who became incarnate through the Virgin Mary, whose family trees can be traced back in both Matthew and Luke through the great, to the great King David. You've been assuming that. You're right. The audience, the congregation who first received this letter were assuming that as well. But it's interesting that the name of Jesus does not appear 
until chapter 2, verse 9, in his comment on Psalm 8. The name of Jesus doesn't yet appear. He knows, we all know who we're talking about. But what's, one thing that, Psalm, that 2 Samuel 7 does is says, now we know what family to look for as we look to who this Messiah, this promised king is. Psalm 2 doesn't tell us that he's descended from David. It didn't have to because it's really a meditation on 2 Samuel 7, on the, the establishment of the covenant with David. And here we have heard God say through the prophet Nathan to David that I will take your offspring, raise him up, I will treat him as my son, I will be as a father to him, and he will build my house. Obviously, in one sense, David's immediate son, next generation, Solomon, fulfills this. Solomon is the house builder. In Solomon's reign, the temple will be built at that place that God had chosen to put his name in the midst of his people. Solomon also fits the part of Psalm of 2 Samuel 7 that we heard it needed to be disciplined with the rod of men. Uh, Solomon's kingdom would be torn in two in the reign of his son, Rehoboam, but that had already been announced because of Solomon's infidelity and idolatry to Solomon himself. So Solomon doesn't really fully fit 2 Samuel 7, because in 2 Samuel 7, there's the promise of the offspring of David whose throne will be established forever, whose kingdom will never come to an end. Jesus is that son. Two thoughts, really, on what 2 Samuel 7, with its, with its environment, with its uh, surrounding neighborhood, add to our understanding of Jesus. First, that he is, in fact, the descendant of David now, and then secondly, that he is the builder of God's house. Jesus belongs to David's tribe, the tribe of Judah. The preacher to the Hebrews will point that out very pointedly in chapter 7, verse 14 of this sermon. He comes from the tribe of Judah. Now Hebrews mentions it there because he says what that means is that he's disqualified from serving as a priest in the earthly sanctuary that has been regulated and laid out in the law of Moses. He cannot serve in the earthly sanctuary. Tabernacle, temple, now the second temple under construction at the instigation of King Herod for many decades. He can't serve there because genealogy counts. In America, genealogy sort of counts, but it doesn't much. Most of us don't think a lot about our great-great-great-great-grandparents. I actually can't trace my grandparents, great-great-grandparents back that far because they came from Sweden. I know my dad gave me a chart someplace of where my family tree goes back, but those are meaningless names to me. I know that it's more important to some people because I occasionally see the commercials for Ancestry.com or Genealogy.com. So some people love to use the Internet to figure out whether they're related to senators or scoundrels, but... You know, that's largely idle curiosity. Not so in Israel. In Israel, genealogy counts. It tells you where you can live, which of the tribes you belong to, and which part of the property of the promised land uh, was allotted to your tribe. It tells you, if you're in the southern kingdom, the legitimate kingdom, who can be a king, a descendant of David, 
And it tells you who can be a priest, a descendant of Levi and then Aaron. Genealogy counts a lot. So it's important that Jesus comes from the line of David. But of course, one of the things we're going to hear in Hebrews is that when you come to the new priesthood, the one announced in Psalm 110, that'll be the last quote we come to this semester, that priesthood isn't defined by genealogy. It doesn't depend on the passing of generations. That priesthood is defined by God's divine oath to a king who is a king forever in the order of Melchizedek. The fact that Jesus is, has royal blood in him qualifies him to be the Davidic Messiah. And it also, by God's oath, qualifies him to be the priest-king combination that we really need. An eternal priest. So Jesus descended from David. That's one of the things that 2 Samuel 7, in its environs, tells us about the identity of the Messiah. God's keeping his promises. God's keeping his covenant. Psalm 89, written from a time when it looked as if God's covenant with David might be in, um, irreparably shattered. First part of that psalm just rehearses over and over again God's faithful covenant to David. He will be the firstborn, most preeminent among the kings of the earth. Great king, because God is faithful to his covenant. And then suddenly it turns. And now the throne and the crown of David are trampled in the dust. How long can that last? And Psalm 89 closes with that question, how long? The answer is until Messiah Jesus comes, who is the priest and the king together. And God will establish his kingdom, has established his messianic kingdom forever. He is ruling even today at the Father's right hand. The other thing that, Psalm, that uh, 2 Samuel 7 adds, just very briefly, is that it brings into view in God's promise to David, that David's great son, the one who does actually rule forever, whose throne will always exist, who will never have a successor, he's a house builder. He's the builder of God's house. Solomon's temple, for all its glitter and all of its glory, was just a very faint preview. It would lie in ruins, even as it seemed at one point that David's covenant lay in ruins. But Ultimately, the son of David will build a house of God that will never lie in ruins. And this means a lot to the preacher, to the Hebrews. If you glance over in the beginning of chapter 3, uh, he is now comparing Jesus with Moses. Um, and he's echoing from Numbers chapter 12, where God commends Moses as a servant faithful in all God's house. And then he says in verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. 
if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are God's house. Jesus is building the house of God. He's referenced already Jesus' role in creation. The builder of all things is God. We heard that in the prologue. But now he wants to focus on a particular construction. The house in which God lives in and among his people. The great son of David is the builder of God's house. Later on, he will talk about Jesus as the great priest over the house of God. You are that house. This chapel may or may not last very long. But the house that Jesus builds will last forever. And you are that house. Jesus made that connection in a certain sense, implicitly at least, when he quizzed his apostles on the buzz on the streets about who he was. And there were all the theories about his being a prophet, about his being John back from the dead. But Jesus says, what about you? And remember, Simon Peter said rightly for them all, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter's echoing Psalm 2 at that point, which is echoing 2 Samuel 7. You are the son of the living God. Jesus said, that's right. You didn't learn this on your own and nobody taught it to you. My father, my father revealed this to you. And you are Peter and on this rock, you the confessor along with the other apostles confessing the truth of the identity of Christ on this rock, I will build my church. That is, I will build my congregated assembly. Don't think only church buildings. But think the congregated assembly of Christ's people in which he dwells. That's, that's what Jesus is doing now through the gospel. You are his house. As we gather in his presence on the Lord's day with his people, the risen Christ is there building his house. Paul even says, 1 Corinthians 3, that our individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Even as he says in chapter 6, that we all together congregationally are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's both. You're living before the face of God and enjoying his fellowship day by day and especially week by week as we gather for worship because the son of David is building the house of God, adding living stones to that living temple for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the great son of David who is, in fact, eternally your son, the radiance of your glory, but who also embraced the task laid out for him, the mission to suffer for his people, to redeem us, to make us who were outsiders and enemies and aliens and excluded, to make us into the very temple and dwelling place of God. Father, thank you for the great redeemer, the great priest king that you have given to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to recreate us into a new and living temple. May others see his glory reflected in us and in our life together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.